So as we begin tonight, getting into the New Testament here, we need to begin by asking, well, where are we right now in the big umbrella of God's story? I think so many people think that the the story of the Bible really begins with Jesus in the New Testament. But we know from our study in the Old Testament that we're very much in the middle of the story. Last week, we looked at the prophets. And so we've seen how God has covenanted with the people of Israel, but they had not been faithful to their calling to walk with him and to be a light to the nations. But we see that God has continued to be faithful to them no matter what. Because of them turning away from him, um, judgment came through other nations coming in, right, to take them captive and take them out into exile. And then some returned. But, you know, it just was not like it once was in the glory days of David, right, after they had returned. And, And the last prophet was Malachi. And... I want to just read this verse to you from Malachi. He was God's messenger to the people that were living in this post-exilic period. They were back in the land, and the exiles had been there about 100 years. And once again, they were not following the Lord's commands, and they were living as they pleased. And so this is a word that God gives to those people living in this post-exilic period through Malachi. Malachi 4, 1 and 2. The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So we see that when the Lord comes, he does come bringing judgment and salvation. And we see this This continued promise, right? And he's trying to have them hold out hope for the coming Savior, Jesus. Then we know there were 400 years of silence after the last prophet, Malachi. So there's this long waiting in the middle of the story. And the people must have wondered, has God walked away? Has he given up on us? And then we find, right, The time is just about ready. And what's happening, the setting for God's covenant people as the New Testament begins is that they are in their land, but they're being ruled by the Romans. And the Romans were ruthless. They expanded their empire with brute force. Many of the people living in Judea were poor. The Jewish religious leaders, many of them, were not living up to their calling. They were rich and powerful, and many of them sided with the Romans. And so, it seemed as if it was this time of darkness in Israel's history. And yet, God still has a plan. That plan that he talked about in Eden, right? When Adam and Eve fell. That promise that there would, would, would be one that would come, a, a seed from Eve, who would have victory over Satan. And I think we're more familiar with these Gospels, right? 
we feel a little bit more comfortable. The ladies in my group said yesterday they were so excited. Yay, we're in the Gospels now. But I guess my heart that I want to share with you this morning is that I just pray that we never lose the wonder that Jesus came for us. Sinners such as we are. I mean, we look at the people of Israel and how they continually turned away from God and failed him. They weren't faithful, did their own thing. And we just, every time we read about them, we have to think, that's us. <laughs> we are sinners just like them. And oh, what a wonder it is that Jesus came for us. I was taking a walk today down by the river in St. Charles. And I think sometimes we fly through our lives, don't we? And yet, we're in this beautiful peak season of the leaves, right? So I was walking along the river and just soaking it all in and thinking, how beautiful is this? The gold, browns, orange, reds of all the leaves, and even just the fun of hearing the leaves underneath my shoes, you know, just that sound that you only get to enjoy <laughs> this time of year, and thinking how, how beautiful it is that the fall and those beautiful leaves are such a picture of God's faithfulness to the world, right? To his creation. We know those seasons keep coming. <laughs> and I was thinking, I don't want to lose the wonder of that. And, and I think at the same time, I relate it to the Gospels and this idea that Jesus came. Oh, what a wonder it is. Let's never lose sight of that wonder. Now, when we look at the Gospels, we need to remember that they were written to encourage and strengthen the people in the early church. And, of course, they were written so that the good news could be spread to the whole world, right? Let's begin by looking at the book of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew's first. And whenever you think of Matthew, I want you to remember the word Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Matthew is wanting to make that clear to us. And just a little side note, come January, guess what book we're going to be studying? All winter and spring, the book of Matthew. So we'll be diving into it much more deeply than we are tonight, but something to look forward to. Matthew was a tax collector turned disciple of Jesus. And I think, oh, tax collectors were called kind of the worst sinners in this time period. And I love that, that, that Matthew not only became a disciple of Jesus, but he got to be one that wrote one of these Gospels. He knew Jesus' mercy, and he was an eyewitness to all of Jesus' public ministry and all those behind-the-scenes moments, right, with Jesus and the disciples. Matthew is telling us that the great story of God is reaching its goal. He's telling the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah who brings salvation to them and to the whole world. Whenever you see the word Messiah, remember it means anointed one. It was used in the Old Testament to speak of kings and prophets. We think of David when he was anointed, right? And when you translate this word into Greek, it's Christ. So they both mean the same thing, the anointed one, and speak of the promised king that God had, had spoken of. When you look at the structure of the book of Matthew, it's organized around five sermons of Jesus, or five teaching discourses that are sandwiched, the beginning with birth accounts and the, and the end with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection accounts. We find in Matthew... 
a couple of sweet things in those birth narratives. The angel telling Joseph that Jesus, Jesus is to be the name of this son that Mary is, is going to deliver. And Jesus means the Lord saves. And then we also see foreign kings coming to worship Jesus as the king. So you can see in your notes the five different discourses that this book is organized around. And what I want you to know about that is Moses is telling, or Matthew is telling us that this is like new Torah. Remember the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch? Those five teachings are reflecting that. He's saying, oh, this is new scripture. <laughs> scripture for the new covenant that we have in Jesus. And Jesus is like the new and greater Moses, the greatest teacher of all. Themes in Matthew, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, of course. He speaks a lot of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which means the reign of God. And there are lots of instructions here for how God's people who have come to him in Christ are to live as his kingdom people. And of course, it speaks of Jesus bringing the good news of salvation. If you have time in the next week, some extra time, extra credit for you, I would love for you to read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, 5, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is like the core of Jesus' teaching the church. And isn't it interesting? We know from our learning in the Old Testament that Moses went up on a mountain to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments. That was the old covenant that was made with God and the people of Israel. And where do we find Jesus teaching? But up on a mountain, right? And the people gather around. And he's giving these new founding documents for the new community that will revolve around him, the church. We see Jesus as a king who blesses his people abundantly and then sends them out to be salt and light. We see him as expanding on the Old Testament laws. He says when he teaches, especially in these three chapters, you've heard that it was said, and he'll quote an Old Testament law, and then he says, but I tell you, and he's speaking with the very authority of God, right? His divine authority. He's saying, oh, you've heard, heard it said, don't murder. But he's saying, don't even sin by having anger or speaking harsh words to people. And don't just love your neighbor, love your enemies. He's reminding us and those people listening to that Sermon on the Mount that it's not just about outward actions. It's really about the heart. And hallelujah, he's going to give his new followers the spirit that will give renew people's hearts and equip them to be able to walk in these ways. One of the highlights of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. And the most beautiful thing that God's people that come to him through Christ, when they come to him in prayer, they can call him Father. This was something very new. How beautiful is that? And when I see all those, the blessings that are given in the Beatitudes, I think it echoes a bit the blessing that God gave Abraham when he said, I will bless you 
so that you will be a blessing. Jesus abundantly blesses his own so that they can be a blessing as well. We see the book is framed by this, this assurance of Jesus' presence. He's called Emmanuel, which means God's with us in chapter 1, verse 23. And then at the very end, after his resurrection, <laughs> he says to his disciples, Oh, I will be with you always. And we see this echoing how God was revealed in the Old Testament. He said, he said I'm going to be your God. You will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. Jesus is that same Lord. We see Jesus triumph over Satan's temptation in the deserts in Matthew, in Matthew 4. And the 40 days that he spends out in the desert echoes the 40 years that the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. And we see him proclaiming his words, the words um, from, from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, as he stands firmly and fights against Satan's temptation. Matthew 4.23 gives us this picture of what Jesus' life was like. He traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. And then Matthew 16, 21 gives this picture that Jesus knew that he was heading toward the cross. He said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and the third day be raised. Whenever you read through the book of Matthew, remember that he is proclaiming Jesus as the promised Messiah. And then Mark, the word for Mark is mission. <laughs> Mark was not a disciple, but it is, scholars believe, that Mark is recording the disciple Peter's account of his interactions with Jesus throughout his ministry. And we know that Mark served with both Peter and Paul in ministry. Mark is the first gospel that was written. It's short. It may very well have been intended to be read aloud, so that's possibly why. We do, scholars do also believe that both Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source, kind of as a core, when they were writing their gospels and then worked from that. We see the structure of, of Mark is very simple, um, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee and the suffering of Jesus in Jerusalem. The themes we find in Mark. Action. Very fast paced. Mark uses the word immediately 42 times in this short book. <laughs> He's revealing that Jesus is on a mission. <laughs> also, there are many, many miracles shown in the book of Mark. Jesus displays great power over everything, <laughs> disease, demons, nature, sin, and suffering, and death. And Jesus, we see him articulating his mission to his disciples three different times throughout the book. Just as Matthew had revealed, he foretells of his crucifixion. He lets the disciples know he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he is going to be raised on the third day. And he, those verses are given in 831, 931, and 1033. We also see in the book of Mark, 
Jesus as a servant. And that he calls his disciples to follow him in that way of lowly service. They're to deny, the, to deny themselves and follow Jesus. It's also interesting as you read through the book of Mark to watch the responses of people. The word amazed is used many, many, many times. And you see right from the start that there are crowds gathering around Jesus. They're coming to see these miracles and to hear his teaching. And then as the crowds are growing, you also begin to see that there's growing opposition. And Mark has another unique thing in it as well, in that he reveals that the disciples, disciples are slow to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And I think that kind of makes me feel at home. Sometimes I'm a little slow to believe, too. In 1, verses 15, we see Jesus beginning his ministry and proclaiming that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. You've been waiting a long, long, long time, and finally, the time is right. The kingdom of God has come to this earth. And then he says, repent and believe in the good news. We find that the son of the term son of God is used many, many times in Mark as well and as in the other gospels. But this once again was an Old Testament title used for Israel's kings. And also we're going to get to see here in Mark and in the other gospels, this wonderful mystery of the Trinity, right? That Jesus has a unique relationship with God, the father and the spirit. Mark, at the beginning, in the first verse, makes it clear what this is. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then at the very end, we see the Roman centurion who witnesses Jesus dying on the cross and proclaims, surely this man was the Son of God. And in the middle, there's this turning point in the book. In chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, You are the Christ. And it's from that point that he does turn his face toward Jerusalem and head towards that mission of going to the cross. If you wanted one verse to sum up the whole book of Mark, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the Messiah does not come like other kings in this world with military might or seeking political power or fame or wealth, but he comes as a lowly one to suffer and to give his life away, to make atonement for the sins of humanity. In Mark, we see Jesus' mission. And then we have Luke. And in Luke, we see Jesus as the liberator. What I always want you to remember about the book of Luke is that the Luke is the first in a two-part volume with Acts. So those scrolls always travel together as one volume, Luke and Acts. So Luke is the gospel about Jesus, and then Acts continues the story of how Jesus works through the Spirit and through the apostles. And, and the early church begins. Luke was a, a physician who was a companion of Paul. 
He was a great historian who did thorough research and he was seeking to bring assurance to the Christians in the early church. What I like about Luke is that it's believed that he's a Gentile convert. And, and really, just like Mark is kind of Peter's gospel, we see Luke as really Paul's story of Jesus written through Luke. In Luke, we find Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, or him being called the Son of Man, 25 times. Once again, this is an Old Testament term for a divine Savior who would come to earth in glory and judgment. And in, specifically in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, it speaks of the Son of Man who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people from all nations shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And this is Jesus, the Son of Man. Some themes. Luke reveals salvation in all aspects of life. So physical, spiritual, emotional, even social. He highlights salvation as both healing and forgiveness more than the other Gospels do. He also reveals the cost of discipleship and gives this clear call that the disciples of Jesus are to, to share in Christ's sufferings for the sake of the Gospel. And then one of my favorite things about the book of Luke is we see the compassion of Jesus and his mission to those that were marginalized in this time, to people who were poor, to women who seemed to have no rights, and to children as well who were not honored the way they are in our society today. Luke has beautiful um, nativity hymns. There are four of them, and I, I would love for you, if you have a minute, take some time to read through Mary's song at the, in, in chapter 1, and you'll see how Mary's hymn echoes Hannah's song that she sang when, when Samuel was born. And you remember it had this theme of reversals, how God raises some people up and lowers others, and Mary speaks of that as well as she praises Jesus and is in awe of the fact that she gets <laughs> to give birth to the Savior. And then a, a couple of familiar verses that you hear often at Christmas time from Luke 2, 10 and 11, where the angels give the greatest birth announcement of all in the night sky to the shepherds. And they proclaim, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I've always thought this is so interesting, right? When people announce the birth of their child, they don't say, oh, this child is given to you, right? They say, oh, this is our child, you know, celebrate with us. But isn't that so amazing that Jesus is given as the Savior to the whole world? It's given even to you and me. And what is he called? What do the angels call him? that he's the Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. In this time period, the Roman emperor called himself both Savior and Lord. And so these statements are giving this picture 
that the true Lord of all has come to this earth. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And there is going to be some clashing of these kingdoms, right? The heavenly kingdom with the kingdoms of this world. At Jesus' baptism in Luke 3, 21 and 22, we have this amazing scene where the heavens open and the very voice of God is heard and the spirit de descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. It's this picture of Jesus anointing by the spirit and then God the Father speaking such beautiful words of blessing over him as he's going to begin his public ministry. You are my beloved son in whom I delight. And once again, these words are words of promise and prophecy from the Old Testament, from Psalm 2-7, from Isaiah 42-1, and even from 2 Samuel 7-14, the promise given to David long, long beforehand. And then one of my favorite passages in Luke from Luke 4, verses 16 to 21, Jesus goes to his hometown and announces the beginning of his public ministry. Luke 4, beginning with verse 16, and Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a powerful moment that was. I wish I could have been there to, to witness that. So Jesus announces that the Spirit has returned and has anointed him, that it's finally time for the good news. <laughs> good news has come. He's bringing freedom to who? The poor, prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. Those who are in need of him, right? And not necessarily just those who are in prison physically or blind physically. I think we, we can think of this also in a spiritual sense, right? And he goes on to say there that he's come not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And the reaction of the people in his hometown, they are extremely hostile and seek to take him out to a cliff and want to throw him off. But then Jesus is able to just walk away. But So we see right here, once again, at the, the beginning, he's announcing his ministry and that the cross is being foreshadowed already. If you wanted one verse to sum up the whole book of Luke, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came for the outcasts, for the outsiders, for the ones that don't have it together, for the ones that will come to him and say, I'm broken, I need you. And I think hallelujah for that. We see Jesus as the friend of sinners.
say praise God because that is what we all are. And I think as well, would people define us today as Christ's modern-day followers, as ones who are friends of sinners? I pray that it would be so. So when you read the book of Luke, see Jesus as the liberator. He's, he can get set anyone free, no matter what they're held captive to, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional or mental. He is the liberator. And last but not least, the book of John, where we see Jesus as the savior of the world. John was one of the disciples closest to Jesus. I love that he describes himself kind of, um, it's, it's like he's trying to be shy, but at the same time, he's wanting everybody to know. He, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> we see that in chapter 21, verse 7. John could be called the cosmic gospel where Jesus is revealed as the Son of God who brings salvation to all who believe. It could also be called the Gospel of Belief. The structure of the book is pretty simple. Chapters, The first 12 chapters, we see the Book of Signs. In 13 to 21, we see the Book of Glory. Throughout the book of John, you'll find the word, our, used periodically, woven throughout. And Jesus will say, the hour has not come. And then eventually, the hour is at hand. And he's speaking of his hour of glory. He's speaking of his greatest moment where he is enthroned on the cross. This is his great moment of glory. I love also chapters 14 to 16 where you see this discourse, the final words that he has with the disciples as he's, they're gathered for his last supper before he's going to head to the cross. The beautiful, beautiful passages there. Themes in John, Jesus' signs and actions. And I've given you the seven signs there in your note. Each sign is given to encourage people to believe in Jesus as the Savior, the Christ. In Jesus, um, we also see some unique teaching of Jesus in the book of John. I've shown you the seven I am statements. So his, his teaching is focusing on his identity and what his work really means. We see this pattern of people's responses in the book of John as either believing or rejecting Jesus. Belief or unbelief. And it's as if John is asking everyone who hears or reads this gospel the question, what will you do with Jesus? Will you believe him or will you reject him? We also find this theme that eternal life can be lived by Christ's followers in the present. They can experience abundant life now. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says to his disciples, I came that you may have life, life to the full. And when we see Lazarus raised to life in John 11, it's as if Jesus is saying, the future is now. You can live the resurrection life now 
because I'm giving you my spirit. Your life is never going to be the same. And so when, when we think of eternal life, it's not about just, I'm getting this ticket to heaven. It's that Jesus comes in by his spirit and gives us this new life in the present. There's one thing I haven't included in your notes, but I want to be sure to mention, because it's super important in the book of John. In John 13, 34, Jesus tells his disciples, love one another just as I have loved you. So it's not just love your neighbor as yourself, but with the love that I've poured out for you, and it's pointing once again to this sacrificial love. He's given his life to bring them and us salvation. Love with others with that kind of love. I want to mention as well that in these I am statements, Jesus is not only echoing many themes that we find in the Old Testament. When he says, I am the bread of life, you think of the manna, right, that was given to God's people when they were in the wilderness. When you, when you think of the true vine, when he says he's the true vine, vine was a, was a theme that was given for God's covenant people. And he says, I'm the true vine. I'm the one that's going to be faithful <laughs> to all of God's commands. And I'm going to bring life to the world. But Jesus is also saying that he is the I am that revealed himself to Moses. Remember when Moses was afraid to go before Pharaoh? And he's kind of trying to give some arguments. I don't speak very well. <laughs> And he says, well, what am I, when I go to the Israelites, who am I, who am I supposed to say is sending me? And, and God tells him, tell him that I am has sent you. So when Jesus is making these I am statements, the people know exactly what he's doing, that he's proclaiming to be God. In John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So powerful. We also need to be sure to look at the beautiful prologue that's, that's given at the beginning of the book of John. Jesus is the word of creation. And he himself, the creator, then takes on flesh, becomes part of the creation, and comes to dwell in the midst of it. He reveals what God has to say and what God is like, John says. Oh, we've seen his glory. He is light and life. And the darkness of this world will not extinguish his light. We see in John 1.29, John the Baptist proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we think of the Lamb that was sacrificed at the Passover, the first Passover, right? Jesus is that perfect sacrificial Lamb who will be sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of the world. And then I just want to read to you probably the most familiar verses in the whole Bible, right? John 3, 16, and I want to read 17 as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God so 
loves the world. We've seen that from the beginning of the story till now. And we see his promises being fulfilled and we're seeing that his desire is to bless and to save rather than to punish or condemn. The one key verse that could wrap up the book of John is John 20, 31. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in Matthew, we see Jesus as the Messiah, and we're challenged to receive him as our king and to live as his kingdom people, blessed to be a blessing. In Mark, we see the Messiah's mission, and we're called to follow Jesus in the lowly way of serving. In Luke, we see Jesus as the liberator, and we're called to follow him no matter the cost because of all that he set us free from. And we just have to share the forgiveness and healing that, that he has given to us. And, and through Luke, we're called to be ones that care for the lost and lowly, the outcast. And then in John, we're just simply called to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then to share the love that he's given to us with those around us. So my prayer tonight is that we would never lose the wonder the wonder that Jesus came to this earth to save us sinners such as we are. Amen.